Sleeper is the fourth film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1973. Woody Allen stars as Miles Monroe, a man who has been frozen for 200 years. He wakes to find himself in a strange futuristic world run by an oppressive big brother-like government force. Things get worse when he unwittingly becomes part of the underground movement and causes a revolution. Sleeper is yet another in the early run of high concept setups for Woody Allen's comedy, but it sees Allen's continued growth as a visual director and a writer with more than just jokes. And probably most important of all, it marks the arrival of Diane Keaton into his films. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast by me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode 12, we look at 1973's Sleeper, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it's great. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film first, then come back. Look, I cannot get into this discussion about Erna with you. I'm getting a hostility ache and I'm a migraine headache now, and I, I haven't seen my analyst in 200 years, and he was a strict Freudian, and if I'd been going all this time, I'd probably almost be cured by now. So we're back in the early years of Woody Allen, and early years of Woody Allen means comedy. The kind of comedy where Alan would star, essentially playing the same character and get to be funny. It's the kind of thing that Groucho Marx or Bob Hope did. I mean, it's not far from what Jim Carrey or Eddie Murphy did for many years. People love Funny Woody Allen, and they wanted to go to the cinema to see Funny Woody Allen. What would change was the setting and the idea. Alan himself remains the same. What else changed with this film was the co-writer. In his first two films, Alan had a co-writer in Mickey Rose. For Sleeper, he asked Marshall Brickman to help. Brickman was a musician who ended up in comedy writing and was a staffer at The Tonight Show and The DeCavett Show. Alan liked Brickman because he liked music and he was funny. The two would write three more films together, including Annie Hall and Manhattan. Alan and Brickman's original idea was a three-hour comedy epic that would be in two parts and have an intermission. You know, like with Gone with the Wind. The two parts would be set in two different time periods, the present and the future. The present would be like what Alan had made before, where we would get to meet a character in modern day New York and he would get into comic situations. The second half would be set in the future after our character travels there. That crazy idea was at least showing that Alan had this huge ambition. He wanted to make more than just what he made before and he started around this time talking about wanting to make great cinema. And from here, you can see him feel restricted by what comedy could do. His film studio, United Artists, were not exactly thrilled at the idea of a three-hour film. It was also clear that the future stuff was the most interesting stuff. And so Alan settled on a more sensible path of making the second part only, the future part. And that was the whole film of a conventional length. Although the modern-day life of Miles Monroe, as our hero would be named, lives in the script in his occupation as a health food store owner and a musician. I know it's hard, Miles, but try to think of this experience as a miracle of science. To me, a miracle of science is I go into the hospital for a minor operation, I come out the next day, my rent isn't 2,000 months overdue. What attracted Alan to the idea of the future was the ability to break rules. In the future, nothing had to be realistic. He had played around with science fiction in one segment of his last film, 1972's Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, but were afraid to ask. The experience of making that short segment inspired Alan to explore science fiction further. One of his first sci-fi ideas was a future society that was essentially silent, where only the elite could talk. It would be an excuse for Alan to do some slapstick silent comedy, in the vein of Charlie Chaplin or Harold Lloyd. 
Alan had flirted with this in the films that he made before Sleeper. Long sequences in Take the Money and Run and Bananas were essentially silent comedy sequences. Alan really wanted to lean into it with this film. Again, as a sign of his growing ambition, he flirted with making this a completely silent film, not even having the elite talk. Or at least, that the second part of his original two-part epic would be silent. Alan stepped away from this idea as well. Either way, what Alan ended up with was a script where there was a lot of silent sequences. It wasn't a whole silent film, but you can see the silent comedy is what Alan is striving for. And sure, you would have to agree that a three-hour, two-part epic where the second half is silent would be commercial poison. But Mel Brooks made Silent Movie in 1976, and the artist won an Oscar in 2011. So it could be done, I guess. Would you like some more? Mm, this stuff tastes awful. I could have made a fortune selling it at my health food store. But let's face it, seeing Alan do a lot of silent comedy wasn't the hook of this film. The hook was Woody Allen in the future. In fact, in France, they just called the film Woody and the Robots. And if you wanted a snakes on a plane type title for this film, then Woody and the Robots is it. The sci-fi premise was pretty simple that Mars would simply wake up in the future after a long sleep. Cryogenics has been used many times in fiction, but there were actually very few films about it by the time Sleeper came out. Of course, since then there's been Austin Powers, Alien, Idiocracy, Futurama, and much more. But it was semi-groundbreaking at the time, but it surely doesn't feel very groundbreaking now. The most obvious precedent for Alan was the H.G. Wells book, The Sleeper Awakes, first published in 1899. That book popularised the idea of a sleeper. The hero of Wells' book was also unfrozen after 200 years and also gets caught up in a revolution against the powers that be. The similarities between Alan's sleeper and the Wells' book was not lost on people. Filmmaker George Powell, who directed the 1960 version of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, had been working for years on a version of The Sleeper Awakes. This film effectively killed that project. Alan actually checked his work with science fiction experts, claiming he was a Luddite with such things. First, he had lunch with legendary science fiction author Isaac Asimov. Asimov is one of the most acclaimed science fiction writers and thinkers ever, and definitely knew a few things about robots. Over the lunch, Asimov reassured Alan that the script was fine. Alan also asked Asimov to join the film as a consultant in case anything changed during the production. He wasn't able to do it, but suggested fellow sci-fi writer Ben Bova, who did take the job. More than the cryogenic stuff, there's other fun sci-fi bits throughout the film. There's cloning, supercomputers, various gadgets and fun stuff. The science fiction stuff was strong enough that Alan actually won two sci-fi awards, the International Honor of the Hugo and an American award called The Nebula. Both are science fiction awards that had a film writing category. This was before Alan won a single Oscar. Hey, that's science. I don't believe in science. I'm, I'm, you know, science is a, an intellectual dead end. You know, it's a lot of little guys in tweed suits cutting up frogs on foundation grants. And... Oh, I see. You don't believe in science. And, and you also don't believe the political systems work and you don't believe in God, huh? Right. So then, what do you believe in? <laughs> Sex and death. Two things that come once in my lifetime. But at least after death you're not nauseous. So with the world set and a rough story in place, Alan set about putting in the funny. The show pieces are the silent comedy slapstick stuff. But Alan delivers more than just physical comedy. He pretty much uses every trick in the book, and it's a really funny book. There's a fair bit of big set stuff and prop stuff where the humour comes from Miles leaning against a big tape recorder or a big mass of out-of-control slime. 
You can't introduce a big banana without doing a big banana peel gag. There's a particularly silly bit where Miles knocks someone out using a big chunk of blue cheese. It's not clever, but the bits are so stupid it's funny. Big dumb props don't date too badly. Then there's funny gadgets. The ultra-modern chair and the orgasmatron. There's jetpacks and hydra suits. There's even a tech update given to the old Marx Brothers mirror scene from Duck Soup, but instead of two Marx Brothers, it's Woody and a video of Woody. Some of the gadgets, like the hydra suit, required stunt work. More than a couple of times, Miles finds himself hanging off a tall building. Alan did a lot of the stunts, but he also used a stunt double. He later also remarked that his memory of making this film was wires. It makes this production sound like an action film, and it kind of was. And if you look at the script, Alan put in silent comedy sequences where action sequences would normally go. Basically, Jackie Chan could have made this film as one of his action comedies with fights instead of slapstick, and very little would have to change. I wonder what the shooting script for Sleeper actually looks like, because so much of it is improvised. The best of it is those silent sequences, where I can't imagine the script has much more than there is a field of giant fruit, Woody Allen can go be funny. The best of these sequences for me are not the big sets or the stunts. It's not the stuff where Alan might fall off a high surface. I like when Alan is being silly and some poor extra has to keep a straight face. The sequences at Luna's house where Miles is pretending to be a robot or the start when Miles has just woken up. There he actually puts a pie in someone's face and no one breaks character. It's hilarious. Alan really wanted to make this silent comedy, but he actually put in plenty of jokes that are not silent comedy jokes, and they work great as well. A lot of the verbal jokes are dripping with time travel irony. This kind of sci-fi is always more about holding up a mirror to the present than any real exploration of the future. And here, Alan is holding up one of those circus mirrors that makes the present look very strange. Like how the food we thought were good for us is bad. Or the sequence where Miles tells doctors about Stalin. It's not exactly the incredibly constructed witty one-liners that Alan is known for. They are jokes that only work in this context, but they're pretty funny verbal jokes anyway. Has he asked for anything special? Yes, this morning for breakfast. Uh, he requested something called wheat germ, organic honey, and tiger's milk. <laughs> Oh yes, those are the charmed substances that some years ago were felt to contain life-preserving properties. You mean there was no deep fat? No steak or cream pies or hot fudge? Those were thought to be unhealthy. Precisely the opposite of what we now know to be true. Some of the references make sense in the early 70s, but are probably dated now. Take, for example, Our Leader, who is portrayed in photos by Timothy Leary, one of the leaders of the counterculture in the 60s and the 70s. He was a big proponent of LSD and the turn-on, tune-in, drop-out way of life. It's hard to imagine Alan, who was really quite straight-laced, would do anything but laugh at Leary. Leary's time was the 70s and by the 80s the world had passed him by. Right now I imagine most people watching the film for the first time might miss the joke completely. There's also references to Howard Cassell, Stalin like I said, Playboy magazine, Bill Graham and other stuff that just simply isn't relevant anymore. The Miss America sequence is dated as that competition has fallen away in the culture. This kind of stuff is what hurts the film watching it today. Who knows, it may have ended last Saturday in the very same way. From the beginning, he appeared... First, we didn't know exactly what this was, but we've developed a theory. We feel that when citizens in your society were guilty of a crime against the state, they were forced to watch this. Remember the way it began? March of 1964. That's where it really began. Yes. That's exactly what that was. Luckily, outside of those time-locked references, there are no shortage of actual pithy one-liners. Once again, we're in a world where Alan's character just says stuff and no one reacts to the weird stuff he's saying. It's hard to believe that you haven't had sex for 200 years. 
204 if you count my marriage. In amongst the jokes is actual proper story. The plot makes sense. The rebellion needs a blank person for their plans, so they work one up. Alan even writes setups and payoffs. The robots are introduced in a scene that is not particularly funny, but Alan does it because he needs to use it later. Even the orgasmatron comes back as a plot point. It's simple stuff, but it's not just sketch after sketch anymore. Sleeper has more of a plot, a beginning, a middle, an end, and some tension we are building towards. Still, there are plenty of scenes that are just sketches that do nothing to advance the story. But then there are scenes that have no jokes at all, and they're just there to advance the story. In fact, the film opens with five minutes of no jokes, just setting the scene. Miles is yet another Woody Allen stock persona, but because he's in a better script and he's on this journey, he's not just a cartoon straight man in a series of sketches. We ever so slightly feel for him when he's lost in his future world, because he's genuinely stuck. And we are sad for him when he discovers his life is gone and that this big adventure rests on his shoulders. Miles is less of a loser than the characters that Alan has played before. He's even a little heroic. For God's sakes, put yourself in my position. I'm a clarinet player in 1973. I go into the hospital for a lousy operation. I wake up 200 years later and I'm Flash Gordon. Plus, I'm a criminal. Luna, played by Diane Keaton, is the most developed secondary character Alan has written so far. Everyone else had just been cartoons, but she's a person with flaws, and she learns and changes. She starts as a character who is happily ignorant, hating the rebels. Then she learns that the state isn't on her side, ultimately becoming a rebel herself. She starts as a character that our hero has to overcome, and our hero turns her into a character that will come back as a believer and save his life. I mean, it's kind of like Han Solo. This is classic, solid screenwriting stuff. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Luna. Who? Luna! Don't you remember? We were outlaws, aliens. The police captured you, I escaped. I'm with the underground. Remember the Western District? Miles, I'm Luna! Luna, remember? Luna! Your name is not Luna, is it? And there's a pretty decent ending too. It's a heist. Luna and Miles have to steal a nose. Alan puts in some character tension. Miles is jealous of Erno, the leader of the revolution. It's good screenwriting as two things are on the line. They have to steal a nose, but our leads also have to get along. The tension in the end comes from seeing if our two leads can pull off the heist, but also put their bickering aside. I assumed that there were jokes that Alan and Keaton had to go on, but they were improvised as well. Alan had apparently planned a more intricate ending that involved stunts, but it wasn't practical. But it doesn't matter. Getting the nose and throwing it under a steamroller is as good a way as any to end the revolution. Because what we as the viewers really want to see resolved is whether Miles and Luna get together. You probably feel a lot safer with Mr. White Teeth back there. Who? You know, the rebel chieftain with the wall-to-wall -wall muscles on his chest. You mean Erno? Yeah, Erno. It's a great name if you happen to be the star of a vampire movie. He's brilliant. Yeah, I know. He couldn't be with us today. He's got to go take his handsome lesson. Oh, you're jealous. Jealous? Are you kidding, honey? With a body like mine, you don't get jealous. Right at the end, we get a little bit of theme thrown at us. Miles says that any new regime will just be like the last. Between the revolution in Bananas and the attempted killing of Napoleon in Love and Death, Alan certainly had revolution on the brain, and it seems consistent with his view on power and authority that it's all the same in the end. He's very anti-authoritarian in a way, but it's also very Woody Allen to not care about the matters of the world. There are bigger matters of the heart, or it's just another hangover of its time. By now, the 60s hippie dream was over, and the 70s was settling in. Don't you 
Don't you understand? In six months, we'll be stealing Erno's nose. Political solutions don't work. I told you that. It doesn't matter who's up there. They're all terrible. You know, the political men... What, what are you looking at me like that for? I think you really love me. Alan shot Sleeper around Denver and nearby Boulder, Colorado, with some extra filming in Los Angeles. Los Angeles was the base for production and planning, with most of the crews sourced from LA. There's no scenes in New York. Alan had yet to decide that his hometown would be his home base. Alan basically went for locations that already looked futuristic, and for some reason, several locations around Denver fit the bill. I'm not sure why Denver was such a hub for modernist architecture, but it was. Alan had considered shooting in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil. Brasilia is still a modernist wonder of a city, but of course it proved too expensive. But do yourself a favor, do a Google image search for Brasilia. The most famous futuristic building is Luna's home, called Sculptured House, which a lot of people just call Sleeper House. It's located on the outskirts of Denver and was only built 10 years earlier and designed by modernist architect Charles Deaton. The house was unfinished at the time of filming and no one actually lived there full time until 2006 after it was bought and sold a few times. It looks amazing but several owners spent millions each trying to get the house complete and comfortable for living. The National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder also serves as the base for the bad guys. That was designed by I.M. Pei who also designed the famous pyramid of the Louvre in Paris. Some of the landmarks are still there, but some are gone. It's hard to predict the future. He claimed he saw secret experiments at the Lexitron Hospital, something called Ares. I absolutely do not want to hear about it, Harold. This world is so full of wonderful things. What makes people suddenly go berserk and hate everything anyway? I mean, why does there have to be an underground? After all, there's the orb and there's the telescreen and there's the orgasmatron. What more do they want? There are some really wonderful cinematic shots of nature as well. Of course, landscapes are an easy way to look futuristic. Trees, forests and caves haven't changed in millions of years. In one of the early scenes, the sky is a lovely blue with the moon right in the middle of the frame. It's one of those shots you reckon everyone had to wait around for hours just to get the moon right. It's a very different approach from Alan's first couple of films. In Take the Money and Run and Bananas, Alan prided himself on coming in on time and on budget. With Sleeper, he went the other way. He became more demanding of getting things to look right and taking the time it took for it to happen. There are lots of stories of the cast waiting around with nothing to do as it rained or snowed. The other cause of delay was a lot of the technical complications. The bubble cars would break down and there was a lot of work to set up the stunts. Also adding to the production time was Alan's habit of shooting far more than he needed. Alan improvised jokes and film sequences that were funny that he didn't really have a place for. In the end, the shoot went for 101 days, the longest of his career to date, and he had 35 hours of footage to sort through. There were a lot of deleted scenes and there are production photos of them. According to editor Ralph Rosenblum, a lot of the funny scenes were cut because they took away from the plot. It's another small bit of growth in Alan's filmmaking and also alludes to what would come next. Alan's perfectionism would only increase and he would ruthlessly rewrite and reshoot his films in the next decade or two. Also futuristic was the costumes, props and sets. The costumes are the work of costume designer Joel Schumacher. The look of the robot butlers in particular are incredible. The first theatrical poster used a shot of Alan in the jetpack, but after the film came out, every DVD or Blu-ray release since always features Alan as a robot butler on the cover. Schumacher would go on to be a director in his own right, but this was his first film with Alan and the two would become close friends outside of work. Alan actually encouraged Schumacher into directing and Schumacher credited Alan for this. Schumacher went on to direct films like Falling Down and Batman and Robin. These robots are uncanny. They're one of our biggest industries here. 
infinitely more sophisticated than any previously manufactured labor-saving devices. They're plastic. Yeah, I know, but they're alert and they respond. You know, I, I've gone out with girls who had less movement than that. Returning a cinematographer was David M. Walsh, who worked on Alan's last film, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. He does a pretty good job, and the cinematography is a huge improvement on Alan's first couple of films. Alan had wanted to continue working with Walsh, but he was unwilling to leave Los Angeles. Walsh would do fine being a cinematographer for many excellent films, including a run with director Herbert Ross that included classics like The Sunshine Boys and The Goodbye Girl. Also returning is Dale Hennessy as production designer, who also worked on everything you always wanted to know about sex. He created all the futuristic sets and bubble cars. The wonderfully named A.D. Flowers created the special effects. He worked with Alan before on Take the Money and Run, and also worked on The Godfather. He created the slime, the explosions, and other effects. I love the way things are lit in this film, and I assume Walsh, Hennessy, and Flowers might have all contributed. The first time we see Sculptured House, it is all lit up beautifully, with a blue night sky behind it. The bubble cars light up. There's some cool light-up furniture. It's not practical, but it looks very hip from a design point of view, and it hasn't dated too badly. One of the more interesting shots is near the end where Miles and Luna make plans in a screening room, and they are shot as just silhouettes. Just overall, the film looks great, with lots of interesting visual ideas. They've certainly done a great job hiding a small production budget. Ralph Rosenblum and Ron Kalish both return as editors, having worked on Alan's last few films. Basically, Alan was starting his habit of working again and again with talented people instead of finding new people every time. He wouldn't be able to keep most of this team together, but that habit was forming. This is Diane Keaton's first appearance in a Woody Allen film. But of course, she had worked with Allen before. The two met when they starred in Allen's Play It Again Sam on Broadway, and they reprised their roles in the 1972 film version, which Allen didn't direct, but it did quite well in the box office. So a lot of people had already seen the two together on screen as a couple. But in real life, they were already not a couple by the time they were playing one in films. She would, of course, appear in Allen's next four films. Now, Sleeper was only Keaton's third film ever. 1972's Play It Again Sam was the second, and the first was The Godfather, just a couple of months earlier in 1972. It's not a bad run for someone's first three films that came out within a year and a half, but this is the first where she gets to be out and out funny, and she is very funny here. Right away, the chemistry between Alan and Keaton is fantastic. She is more than his equal. It's that old Grace Kelly line about being able to do everything Fred Astaire can do, but backwards and in heels. That applies here. Keaton can keep up with Alan's pace, improvise funny lines, and not break character. And she manages to look radiant whilst doing it. We are drawn to her whenever the pair are on screen. Beyond the funny, Keaton shows remarkable range. She goes through physical comedy, to spitting out one-liners, to doing very funny Marlon Brando impressions. Yet at other times, she plays defeated, or sweet, or threatened, or exotic when she is Luna. Alan has written Luna as a character with a journey and some complexity, and Keaton sells it with grace. And she is the best actor to grace a Woody Allen film up to this point. I've been on to you from the start. I've seen how you try to sprinkle this place up with them powders and those fancy French colognes. Well, I say, ha! You hear me? Ha! Ha! But let's not forget Alan's acting either. He's great. He's charming when he needs to be and silly when he needs to be. He's got his slapstick work down pretty well, pulling some hilarious faces and funny pratfalls. And like I said, there are parts where he almost seems heroic. Alan and Keaton are pretty much in every scene once they're introduced. A couple of people get supporting cast billing, but it really seems arbitrary why Mary Gregory, who plays Dr. Melick, 
gets a big credit, but Bartlett Robinson, who plays Dr. Orva, who gets more lines and scenes, doesn't. I assume Gregory has a better agent. That supporting cast, like Gregory, Robinson, but also John Beck and Don Kiefer and many of the others, are all hard-working character actors. They are the kind of actors who appear in dozens of roles and are usually not tied up in long shoots. They are happy to appear in either TV shows or films and are usually based out of LA. The supporting cast will do fine, but this was really the last time that Alan would work with LA as his base. And with that, Alan would stop getting readily available TV character actors for his minor roles, moving instead to out-of-work New York theatre types. It's a small distinction, but you can see what Alan left behind with this film. Contrasting the futuristic setting is the music. For a film about the future, Alan instead went back in time to New Orleans jazz that was popular in the period between the wars. It was a deliberate move by Alan to avoid synths or moogs or other futuristic sounds. Alan loves his New Orleans jazz, also known as Dixieland, and he would use it throughout his films to come. He also, at this time, had recently started playing in a Dixieland band called the New Orleans Funeral and Ragtime Orchestra, blowing his clarinet most Monday nights at Michael's Pub in New York. So he took his clarinet and travelled to New Orleans himself to record the soundtrack. For two days and for $12,000, Alan hired the Preservation Hall Jazz Band to back him in a series of recordings. That legendary New Orleans jazz band featured George Lewis, Alan's clarinet hero, who had only just died in 1968. The Preservation Hall Jazz Band ran through a bunch of songs with Alan, and Alan took the recordings back to New York to put in this film. He also recorded some tracks with his regular band in New York, recording in Michael's Pub. The songs they recorded were classics of New Orleans jazz. Wonderful songs like Canal Street Blues, which was first performed by King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, which featured a young Louis Armstrong, who also gets a writing credit. There's also Ice Cream, a 20s novelty song that became a jazz standard, performed by the Jim Robinson Band that featured a young George Lewis, and Wolverine Blues that was written by Jelly Roll Morton. The film opens with Taint Nobody's Business If I Do, which Alan would later reuse as a musical number in the Bullets Over Broadway musical. All these songs serve to give the film a real pace. The Preservation Hall jazz band play with a lot of energy, and that energy gets transferred onto the action on screen. There's no lyrics or singing in the score, and functionally, the tracks are almost interchangeable. A lot of it is used for the soundtrack of Alan running around, and it's great running around music. Alan doing the music was something the people around him encouraged. It helped cement the idea that Woody Allen was the new Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin also wrote, directed, starred and composed the music to his own films. Yet for whatever reason, a soundtrack was never released. There's a lot of great Woody Allen films where there's no soundtrack issued. If I had to choose just one to finally see a release, it would easily be this one. The last thing to fall into place was the opening credits. The opening credits sequence strike a similar tone to the famous credit sequences that Alan would use for another 40 films. It's white text on black with music underneath, but the font was not quite the one that he would ultimately settle on, and the order of the names and how things are laid out would later change. It's another sign that Alan was still working out what he wanted to be as a filmmaker. Watching it today, it's just almost there, and that's true about a lot of this film. It's almost there. Miles, you've got to help us. You got the wrong guy. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not the heroic type, really. I was beaten up by Quakers. Sleeper was released on the 17th of December 1973 in the US, released by United Artists. It was Alan's third film for United Artists, who would sign Alan to another three-picture deal with full creative control. He would make four more films for United Artists after Sleeper. It was another hit for Alan, much like all his early comedies, and it fits in well with other great comedies of the 70s like The Life of Brian, M.A.S.H., A New Leaf, or Blazing Saddles. All had good stories, and they make the comedy better because of it. It's like how Weird Al Yankovic 
is funnier because the songs are so good and the musicianship is so good. For me, of the five early funny ones, this is the best one. There's a path here for Alan to make comedies that also dealt with his bigger concerns about life and philosophy and meaning, and he could make a film that looked pretty good. A real cinematic spectacle. High concept comedy with big ideas would continue into his next film, Love and Death, and then of course he would abandon it all after Annie Hall. I sometimes think it's even a bit unfair to compare those first five films. It's more like three early sketch comedy ones and then two not as early comedy adventures in Sleeper and Love and Death. And I'm sure everyone around Alan, his managers, his studio, etc., would have loved to have Woody just continue making these kind of comedy adventures with big set pieces and just enough romance to get by. His audience would have probably loved it too. But of course, Alan would go on to do something very different. I think this film gets unfairly overshadowed by the work Alan did later. It's as good as any of Mel Brooks' early work. And in a way, the concept is strong and the visual are strong and the basic storytelling is so strong that this could easily be transferred into a musical the way Brooks turns his early films into musicals. Everything about it is just robust enough for adaptation. There should be more memes about this film and people should quote this film more. Instead, Alan's own film a year habit means that some of his best works get buried and I think this one's gotten buried. The story is the bit that stands up best. I love Miles and Luna, this wonderful odd couple of the man out of time and the woman out of her comfort. And there's plenty of laughs along the way. Yes, it's full of dated references and it lives in the shadow of the genius work that will come. It's fine, it works, it's enjoyable. And it might not change the course of cinema, but that's a tough bar. Some of those small things nag at me watching the film now, but I'm laughing all the way through. In the story of Alan's career, he is really starting to make his mark. He gets to do the clever philosophical stuff, having stabs at popular culture. Whilst being on top of his joke game, he writes, he directs, he stars, and he composes. It's pretty incredible how much showing off he's doing. And United Artists were telling anyone who would listen that he was a one-of-a-kind genius. Woody Allen, the genius, really starts to show here. But it's just not quite there yet. Still... He had been funny before, but for me, this was Woody Allen's first really great film. Oh, sucker. You don't realize that you've been dealing with one of the greatest minds you've ever seen. Yeah, and his isn't so bad either. Yeah. Here's some fun facts about Sleeper. Notably, the voice of the evil computer is Douglas Rain, who played the voice of the evil computer in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Also in the voice cast are two Jewish comedians, Myron Cohen and Jackie Mason, who are the voices of the Jewish robot tailors. I'm absolutely sure audiences got that joke in 1973. Hello, Dr. Temkin. So nice to see you. I'm BioCentral Computer 2100 Series G. I'll be assisting you through the entire process. May I say, Doctor, we're all aware of your reputation and we look forward to a successful and rewarding cloning procedure. The engineer who recorded the Preservation Hall sessions was a young Phil Ramone. Ramone would go on to be a legendary record producer, making hit albums for Paul Simon, Billy Joel and many others. But he started as a recordist for films and had worked on Casino Royale, which also starred Alan. And speaking of music, the name of this film was used by a British band in the 90s for their band name. Sleeper are a great band. Particularly love their first two albums. Great crunchy Britpop with Edge and some clever cheeky lyrics to boot. They did a cover of Blondie's Atomic on the Trainspotting soundtrack. As far as I can think of, they're the only band to take their name from a Woody Allen film. Although if you know of another, I'm happy to be proven wrong. Thanks for listening to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. What do you think of Sleeper? 
or this episode? Do you agree or disagree? Send me an email or contact me on social media. I'm at WoodyAllenPages at gmail.com and at WoodyAllenPages on most social media. The best feedback and questions will go into a special episode. As usual, go check out WoodyAllenPages.com. The site is 10 years old now and is the most comprehensive guide to Alan's work online. You can support the website and the podcast and myself by supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Pages. Links are in the description. You can get some goodies and you can help me. Some of our top supporters also get a shout out in the podcast. If you want to know more about Woody Allen's work, I suggest my book. Three volumes called The Woody Allen Film Guides that tell the story of every Allen film. The podcast is pretty nerdy, but the books are intensely nerdy and detailed. Links are also in the description. Otherwise, just spread the word. Tell a friend. We have to keep the conversation and Alan's work alive. It's the most important thing, and it's why this podcast even exists. Next week, we look at one of Alan's most ambitious films with a huge cast. Thanks for listening. My brain, it's my second favorite organ.